0: Welcome to the faculty podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50 plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington. And I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. Hey, Peter.
1: Hi, Scott. Good to see you again.
0: Good to see you. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hi, Tommy. Hi. Great to be here. Great to have you. And I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, Lecturer in New Testament at RTS and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the Northern Virginia area. Hey, Paul. Scott, thanks for having me as usual. It's great to have you. And we are, again, joined by our man in Jakarta, Dr. Gray Sutanto, who is the newly announced systematic theology professor here at RTS Washington and will begin June 1, but we've got him here early to join us for the faculty podcast. Hey, Gray. It's God great
2: to be here once again.
0: So what we want to do is start a discussion in which we are gonna talk about public theology and, and, and we actually kind of deliberately use that language instead of political theology because we're talking about public iterations, public expressions of our theological commitments that are deeply held by us as followers of Jesus Christ, as opposed to just talking about a political theology, which is usually dealing with policy prescriptions that might come out of a theological perspective. So we want to talk about this broad topic of public theology over the next few episodes, where we will engage not only with a general overview and introduction to public theology and kind of the, you know, the biblical theology and systematic foundations for such a thing, and, and you know, even the possibility of such a thing, And then we're going to move on and talk about public theology, both in this more political realm where we're talking about the systems and structures that are articulated uh, hopefully clearly uh, by our policy commitments in whatever context we are operating, whether it's the city or the state, or in many ways, you know, the the homeowners association or uh, the federal government. And then we're going to come in and talk a little bit more about, public theology as it finds expression in our daily lives, the more regular, relational, and what we might even call mundane ways in which public theology finds expression in the Christian life. So I want to start with this basic question. What are the foundations that we find in Scripture and in Christian tradition for a public theology? Let me start with you, Tommy Keene. Can you help us think through... What cues do we get in Scripture that our theology should have expression in our public life?
3: A number of places you could go in, in the New Testament in particular. Um, I'll leave it to my Old Testament colleagues to, to wax poetic about that. But uh, a couple of places that you could go in the New Testament to kind of see how uh, Christians are encouraged to engage this, the city, the culture, the, the set of networks. Wherein they live, one that comes to mind. I mean, there's a whole actually book about the subject in First Peter. First Peter is written to exiles in, uh, you know, k- kingdom exiles in, in, in the midst of their in the midst of their society and how to behave amongst the Gentiles. To use, to use Paul's, uh, to, to use Peter's words there. Um, so you've got a whole book on the subject. But but uh, one really interesting to me. Uh, idea that I've been thinking about lately is, is in Philemon, Paul there is engaged in a very tricky, a very difficult, challenging issue uh, related to, to uh, Onesimus and his relationship with Philemon and vice versa. And one of the things he does that's really interesting to me is, is he doesn't write a private letter. He doesn't write it just to Philemon. Um, he says, Philemon, and the church that meets in your house. And it, one of the questions is why does he do that? Why not just the private letter between him and Philemon? Because at he, 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 no point does he address the rest of the church. It's not like I'm gonna do this work over here and then that work over there with the church. First I'm gonna to talk to Philemon and then I'm gonna pull the church aside. It's as if this conversation that he's having with Philemon has a public space to it, that he wants, there's all sorts of theories about why he might be doing this. One is maybe that it puts more pressure on Philemon to do the right thing. But I, I think that that doesn't explain the data. To me, one of the best reasons, one of the best things that he's he's doing here is having setting up Philemon and his honorable behavior to be a public example to the church and the world and the communities within which he lives. It's, it's not just about him, Philemon, and Onesimus. It's about how do we create a culture of honorable behavior and so so that what what happens then is Philemon's actions become a public display of Christ and the things and his union with Christ and his union with with his brotherly union now with Onesimus that's now all on public display and i think that indicates to us that paul wants these principles to play out in the various communities that individual Christians uh, operate in and, and are in orbit around.
0: Yeah. He's really dealing with this personal relationship and the need for reconciliation. And I think it's something that even a lot of Christians today would probably think, Oh, this is something that should be handled personally. And yet he sees it as opportunity to handle it publicly, that it's, that, that it is a bit of a, it's a public offense. Yeah. And it needs to therefore be handled publicly as an expression of, for Paul, I mean, doesn't he even use the language that it's as if both of you are my spiritual sons. And so be rejoined because of your conversion. Oh, which, by the way, I'm the one who brought the gospel to you.
3: Right, right. And so because of their identity in Christ, they're they're, they're all brothers. They're all firstborn sons of God. And given that, Philemon is then encouraged to, to treat Onesimus at, in, in that respect as a firstborn son of God, just as you are, as my son, just as you are. Uh, and then the, that public space in which that's read, I think it, Paul is confident that Philemon will do the right thing. And because he's confident that Philemon will do the right thing, he writes the letter not only to Philemon, but to the church, so that Philemon's behavior becomes an example to everybody.
4: So, Tommy, some people who uh, might be listening, they might have this question that the way we're using public theology right now still is within the confines of the church community. Uh, I think that some people would respond by saying, well, you know, it's you're right in that Paul's not writing a private letter between him and Philemon, but he is still writing to the people of God. And so... Maybe we can clarify, when we say public theology, are we also referring to those outside of the boundaries of our faith community?
3: I think so. I don't think that's what Paul is writing about. I, 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 I think he's seeing the primary orbit within which this is going to take effect as being the church. But if we wanted to broaden the perspective, at that point I'd go to First Peter let your behavior among the Gentiles be honorable, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, uh, which I take as the thesis statement of the book. I, I think what's happening there is this, this kingdom ethic, which should be true for the church and which we see in Paul, that kingdom ethic is also of benefit to the world. And as a result, Christians behaving like Christians in their communities can be a blessing to the Gentiles pr- because they pursue justice, because they they are imitators of Christ, because they are children of a uh, heavenly father. They are then a blessing, 1 Peter 3. They, they, they bless the world around them.
0: So I want to go back a little bit, maybe do a little bit of what Richard Hayes says, calls reading backwards. I want to read back now because, of course, the New Testament authors, the prophets and the apostles of the New Testament— would not see themselves as creating or giving expression to a new religion, but rather exegeting Old Testament scripture and applying it into the, the, the world in which we now know the resurrected Christ, the world of the church. So let's go back a little bit and see what is the, what's the biblical theological foundation for this kind of theology that we're finding expressed in Paul with his letter to Philemon and, and Peter, and see if we can unpack exactly how that is, that theology gets threaded up.
2: Thanks, Scott. Um, That's a really insightful comment that the New Testament is actually trying to extend and apply Old Testament religious insights to this new context after the coming of Christ. And I think what's really important uh, to note here, this is also in response to what Paul was asking, what Tommy was saying, is that biblical religion is trying to restore What was lost in nature right what was lost in the fall in other words this is the principle of grace restoring nature that what the bible reveals to us what the new testament ethic and the old testament prophets were testifying to was actually the way in which god could restore uh, nature that these biblical ethics what paul was doing there to in the philemon letter and what paul is saying in first peter why it is such a blessing when you when when the christians act in these ways is precisely because they were modeling for people what natural relationships are supposed to look like and so when marriages are functioning well that's what natural marriages are supposed to look like and when uh, we treat one another as human beings this is what are the social implications of that reality so that uh, the biblical religion is not actually um, you know, it's, it's not creating a new sectarian community with its own individual ethic, we might say, right? It's actually trying to proclaim public truth about what God has always intended uh, before the fall and also trying to consummate that towards something even greater, right? So that everything that we do as a church testifies to God's intended design and points to greater telos of the new heavens, the new earth, where there would be no sin where there would still be relationships, uh, where there would still be worship of God, but at the same time, grace has completely restored nature and nature has been consummated to something new.
0: Yeah, and you find that articulated in the Old Testament in both positive and negative ways. Not only positive, here's how you ought to then live outwardly, but also negatively, this is how you ought to restore that which is broken. And And I always think of The positive expression is, of course, sort of the heart of the law. It's the beating heart of the Mosaic covenant. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, or self, and your strength. And then when Moses himself applies self, or it's rather strength, out into the world, he says, put it on your doorposts, put it on your gateposts, talk about it when you're on business trips, (laughs) tell your kids, right? So it's this public expression of your love of the Lord that is restoring what was lost or at least giving expression to a restoration of what was lost in the fall. And then on the negative side, it's the idea that because of the fall, because of the effects of sin in the world, we have suffering. And from in Deuteronomy again, as as sort of the hub of of the old Testament canon, I think I can say that's pretty much obviously true. (laughs) You know, in Deuteronomy over and over again, we see this, we see this language of the, the orphan, and the widow and the sojourner. And they're the three terms kind of co-located to represent all of those who are acutely experiencing the suffering as a result of the fall. Right. And sometimes it's just orphan and widow. And sometimes it's just sojourner and sometimes I think Zachariah adds poor in there to the group to try to kind of make sure we get the point that these, this, this, this suffering that we see in our societies around us is because of the fall. And as a result of God's redemptive work in the world, we should be seeking to care for and to love them. As a matter of fact, they're almost used like a thermometer to tell you the faith of the community. If the community is faithful, then the widow sojourner widow, orphan and sojourner will be cared for. And if not, then they won't be, they'll be exploited. And that means that God will come and care for them instead and you don't want that that's always kind of the teaching you don't want god to have to come and care for them because that'll be a judgment to you right so in the old testament you see this kind of outward emanating outward system of the response of the covenant of god's people should be their covenantal love not only for the community but also for the strangers in their midst Right, It's a very broad, expansive application of loving others. Yeah, you see that
2: very clearly, too, we might add, in the text of Romans chapter 12, for example, where you see this combination of um, a vertical worship to God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord. But you know, towards, I think, verses 12 to 18 of Romans chapter 12, we have this ethic that looks horizontally as well to the neighbor, to not repay vengeance with vengeance, to feed those who are poor, those who are suffering, right? To take care of them. So that Christianity is always taught both uh, that it has vertical dimensions and also cosmological, horizontal social dimensions as well, doesn't it? You
0: know, it's interesting that Jesus even highlights this. We might think, well, that's an Old Testament concern. It's not a New Testament concern. But when Jesus is being asked, who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? it's poignant, right? And not lost on his hearers that he uses a Samaritan who would have been outside of the covenant community as the expression of neighborly love. And I think for those who want to say, well, the old Testament only applies to the life of the church. They miss the fact that Christ very clearly is making this point about neighborly love, you know, being for all of our neighbors. Right. And it it permeates out of the covenant community into the broader world. And that this is really, these are kind of the basic public ethics that undergird what we might call a public theology, how Christians are to live in the world. And that's not to say that we should not disambiguate between the life of the church and the life outside of the church, right? And yet recognize also that 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 barrier, that boundary is not impermeable. Like our worship and our love needs to be finding expression in this broad cosmic global way.
1: Yeah, Scott, thanks for sharing that. Uh, this is Peter speaking here. Um, uh, I agree with, uh, with a lot of everything that you guys are saying. I, I'm thinking also of something even like, uh, it's subtle, but I've always found helpful in Deuteronomy 17, sort of the second half of 17, where they give the um, sort of the Deuteronomic job description of the, uh, of the Israelite king and how, uh, you know, there are sort of negatives, you know, you're not going to have lots of money, you're not going to have lots of wives. And then it goes into the positive. But the one only positive that it mentions, interestingly, is how he needs to focus on on the law, copy the law, study the law, meditate on the law. But it does mention a subtle purpose there is so that you don't see yourself above your brothers. There's sort of this vertical line of the king in his uh, covenantal understanding uh, communion with the Lord that is going to be manifested in how he sees his role as a King to his, to the Israelites uh, under him. So although Deuteronomy doesn't mention there in 17 about his, uh, his duties to the orphans and widows per se, it it definitely is implicit there because that's how he is going to show his uh, covenantal fidelity to the Lord by how he cares for the needs of those uh, that are around him, thus the, the prophets following him, of course, then condemned the Israelite kings for their inability and for their negligence uh, in, in these areas, uh, uh, because they didn't, uh, in fact, do that. I often also think about the, the public nature of the prophets, how, you know, with the, the real, you know, after Moses, the real big uh, outstanding expression of, of prophets, of course, and someone like Samuel with the time of the monarchy where where now the prophetic voice is so public now as it's being now kind of part of the growing uh kingdomization so to speak of israel the the voice of the prophets initially were just focused on the kings uh so you have the speaking prophets of elijah elisha nathan gad and so forth they weren't really speaking to the people as they were speaking to the king but then later on the prophetic voice becomes very public uh it's to the community at large then you've got the writing prophets of isaiah uh amos hosea well you know the writing prophets that we um that we now uh have and and you see the the way that the word of god is is becoming much more public now to the community it's it stayed initially in the court of the king and then made very uh very public uh, for the Israelites uh, in general. In fact, uh, Tommy alluded to First Peter. In fact, First Peter even ref- refers to the writing prophets as they were not writing for, or they were writing for you, that is the church, uh, to so- show the multi-generational aspect of the word of God and how it, it, it is not meant to be isolated just for the covenant community of Israel of old. It, it is, that's, that's our word uh, as well.
0: So how do we understand that idea, Peter, that you just brought up? How do we understand that in light of a doctrine like the doctrine of the spirituality of the church?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, an important relationship. And without getting to all the historical nitty-gritties of the doctrine of the doctrine of the spirituality of the church, uh, there does seem to be a a an important priority it it's hard to know how to in, engage in and encouraging god's people to to love one another unless it becomes first based on i guess you could say our understanding of god's love for us in, in terms of the new testament of course that being supremely manifested in in the person of jesus christ his death on the cross his resurrection from the grave uh, our union with christ if there's anything that the spirituality of the church discussion is trying to preserve, I would suspect it, it's trying to preserve that as the the primary message upon which all of life is built, not just our own uh, uh, salvation, of course, but even how uh, we relate to one another. How do we love one another unless we first understand the love of God for us?
2: One way to get at that particular uh, distinction in the spirituality of the church and also at the same time the social responsibilities of the individuals of the church, maybe we could say, is the Kyperian distinction between uh, the church or the gospel as pearl and leaven. right? Uh, so Kuiper and Boving both used this analogy that the church is a pearl, that it brings us to God, that it is spiritual in character. It's beautiful in and of itself we come to the church and as a church to worship the Lord together in a new community. But at the same time, it's also a leavening agent. It's a power that permeates uh, society that it testifies to grace restoring nature. And therefore we will have social relationships that are going to be reformed because of the gospel. And I think that uh, distinction between gospel as pearl and leaven helps us to guard against, you know, making the church into just a worldly entity, the church as merely a pragmatic help for the world. But at the same time, it also helps us to see the church not just as a sectarian community that uh, causes us to uh, go away from the world, form our own little community to worship God in isolation from the world, right? So it preserves the spirituality of the church and also the public dimensions of the church as well.
3: I think that's a really Helpful distinction, and and as somebody who's a big believer in the spirituality of the church, and for for many years uh, in in pastoral ministry, have found that to be that doctrine to be particularly helpful in a lot of pastoral problems and a lot of pastoral situations. while, While loving the doctrine, I think that that distinction is really helpful because it's a reminder that we can be talking about the church as church, and that there's an appropriateness to that discussion. What does the church do as church? And what does the church do insofar as it equips saints, it equips Christians and believers to be good citizens in in the world? I think sometimes that distinction can be used to sort of shut off dialogue, shut off discussion of the latter. How should Christians behave? How can Christians be a blessing in the midst of among the Gentiles? Uh, As if we, okay, we've got this distinction, uh, the church as church versus Christians and their neighbor. And so we don't we we don't need to talk about Christians and their neighbor, uh, but the distinction is helpful to actually free up that discussion of how does a Christian, equipped by the church, encouraged by the church, be a beneficent member of society? Uh, again, to switch from First Peter, which is about that topic, to something like. James. You know, what is true religion? J- James defines true religion, and th- this to, to Scott and Peter's point from the Old Testament, as caring, as, as at least partially caring for the orphan and the widow. That, that is the, the end of my behavior in this world, is to care for those around me, to seek, to seek their good, to seek justice for them, because, I, I, and then Scott, I love the point, Because if they don't, God will. And I might be implicated in that.
0: That's a great point. And so, this idea of loving neighbor and having the gospel find expression outside of your own sort of personal, private life, outside of the worshiping community in the world around you is a clearly and deeply established doctrine of Scripture. And so, what we want to do over the next couple of episodes is look at how that gets unpacked in more particular ways. There's a temptation to keep this somewhat ethereal, somewhat up in the clouds, and not bring it down and talk about how this actually finds expression in the lives around us. And so we wanna talk a little bit about how that might find expression in your political life, the, the, the way that you vote. I mean, I'm here, we're in Washington, DC. We have a lot of people who work at different levels of government. And so we want them to be able to think in a Christian way about the work that they're doing. But then the thing that really affects all of us is also how do we think and talk about this in a broken world? How do we seek to restore nature by grace in a world that is clearly very broken, where we see around us poverty and orphanhood, and widowhood, and suffering, and unemployment, and the terrible plight that is faced by black men in the United States most recently, and tragically, and terribly uh, exemplified in the case of Ahmad Arbery, how do we as Christians approach the public square with this gospel, to use Paul's language, that we've been entrusted with, and then go and serve in the public space as loving and Christ-centered followers of God. We're going to come back to that in the weeks ahead, but we want to transition now to another discussion, and that's the discussion of, which comes up a lot in this public theology discussion, how do we as Christians come and disagree with one another and be firm to our convictions and to our interpretation of scripture. And yet at the same time do that with reasonable Christians who may disagree with us, uh, who might hold different positions, but not only with Christians, but with everyone around us. This is an aspect of public theology. How do we care for and faithfully articulate scripture in a world where disagreement and dissonance is uh, is going to be prevalent? How do we do that in a way that it gives expression to who we are in Jesus Christ?
3: That's such an important component of, of the conversation because you know, we we really unless we can figure out ways to converse, to agreeably disagree, to move conversation forward, unless we figure out how to have these kinds of discussions. We can't really solve any problems. We've we've got to figure out how to have the discussion before we can discuss it productively. And and so often, what happens in the case of these these kinds of conversations is we we can't really even do the important work because we don't know how to talk to each other. We we don't know how to uh, to dialogue and move the conversation forward in a, in a way that's productive, not only for all the people having the conversation, but for the you know the wider watching world it's become a kind of sub theme to a lot of our episodes so far like how do we interact with one another in a way uh in a way that's that's helpful
4: now in terms of learning to just engage people that have different opinions um i i've actually thought about this for a long time because um I went to a very uh, reformed seminary, right, and I'm very thankful for it. You know, I learned so much, and in many ways, uh, the seminary gave me uh, a kind of theological backbone to engage, you know, uh, worldviews and people that differed. At least, in terms of, they gave me a theological framework, uh, expressed especially in someone like Van Til, but you see, it's not just having the tools and skills, but it's really having the right disposition. I think that one of the things that I did not see modeled well for different reasons is just learning to play nice, uh, learning to listen well, right? And for me as a pastor, especially in an area where we're intentionally not in a Christian bubble, we, we try to really engage people that have different, not just theological views, but just different worldviews, right? Something that I have found very helpful is so basic to believers, like uh, the letter of James talks about this, when it says, just be very slow to speak, uh, and be be very careful to listen a lot. Uh, I read this book by this uh, very popular secular author, and initially I dismissed it, but she said that one of the practical ways to learn to listen well is to always ask seven questions before you respond now i think a lot of people might find that mechanical and artificial and so initially i dismissed it but i i found that actually that has made me a better listener and if anything it's exposed me to myself in the sense that i see how many um assumptions i carry when even when i'm trying to listen well Uh, the last quick comment I want to make there that has been very helpful for me is over the years, I've read a lot of memoirs, uh, particularly those by uh, unbelievers, skeptics. And um, that exercise has been very helpful because, you know, we do this even as very sincere believers. We, we just tend to people think of people as ideas on a stick instead of just full image bearers. And I have uh, found that the exercise of reading memoirs really um, helps you to understand, like, um, the bigger picture. And the the fruit from this is not that your answer changes. It's not that your answer changes, but the way you answer people does change. Like, I remember reading this memoir about this man who was arguing for gay marriage, right? And uh, that was a very good memoir for me because it helped me not to see the issue just from a biblical perspective, per se, but from the perspective of someone that fears being alone for the rest of his life, right? And so that that has really, I think, shaped the way I speak about this very difficult topic of like the Bible and homosexuality. And so I would say for me, um, just learning to ask many questions and um, reading a lot of memoirs has been very helpful in terms of this exercise of trying to maintain conversations with people who are very different from us.
2: That's so good, Paul. And I think the principle that we're getting at there with reading memoirs is this idea that you need to become more sympathetic and empathetic with others precisely by getting to know them, by being around people who are different than you, and hence being able to relate with them in a particular way so that you don't communicate the gospel as, as, as you said, they're just heads on a stick, right? these are embodied people with their own past struggles and histories, and we have to be able to relate with them in that particular way. And hence, in our disagreements with them, we would be able to come off in in, in critiquing those who disagree with us and expressing our disagreements as relationally mature and sensitive uh, communicators to them, right? And your journey towards that understanding from seminary life to reading memoirs, and, and maybe perhaps also your journey here as a pastor, I think I went through something like that as well, because I think something that becomes really, really clear in a reform context is that there should be a a diligence and a zeal for the truth. And I think that's important. There is a sense in which we have to be zealous for the truth. But at the same time, we have to understand that um, in our zeal for the truth, we're not supposed to simply bulldoze our theological interlocutors with the truth and we to, we're to relate to them pastorally and as human beings. And I think going to Edinburgh and actually meeting with professors and unbelieving colleagues and friends who are just incredibly intelligent and decent people, and it's not like we don't express our disagreements, we do, but what I'm realizing as they express their disagreements to me and to their own colleagues is that they actually listened well and they treated these other people with dignity and respect in a way that perhaps I might say those in the reform community don't treat one another within the same Reformed community with, uh, with the same kind of decency and respect as I saw my uh, non-believing friends and colleagues treating one another and also Christians there, right? So I think going through that journey and also becoming a pastor myself and listening to people who are suffering and meeting people from a variety of different backgrounds, you know, where we're not just talking about academic theology, but we're also having to communicate the gospel in these concrete embodied ways.
3: I, I really love the, those two concepts that, that we've got on the table now. We've got listening and sympathy as kind of categories for having these kinds of conversations. I think we for, forget that, particularly in the midst of, as soon as the conversation becomes to some extent polemical or there's a disagreement that that's clearly in, in the conversation. I think we forget that the goal of the conversation isn't actually that... Uh, I convince the other person to agree with me. I mean, we, we, we know that that's not the goal of conversation. We know the goal of conversation is iron sharpening of iron and mutual edification and, and that kind of thing. But when the disagreement presents itself, we think that the goal is you need to agree with me. Uh, the, the, the way we move forward is by me proving that I'm right. But we, we, I think we need to not lose sight of the goal that we, that we all learn together and grow together, and that we both leave the conversation to somewhat, somewhat changed and more nuanced and more mature than we entered into it. Uh, Van, Van Til was really helpful for me in seminary for that, to to remind me that all truth is God's truth. I mean, just to to keep things simple, I guess I, I know Van Til's more complicated than that, but. To to mine from the Egyptians that I can learn from people that don't share my presuppositions, even my ultimate presuppositions that the Lord is God and that He has sent His Son and that He is raised. Like I can l- listen and learn from that, and it ch- have a positive substantive uh, change in the in the way my, way I'm thinking. Uh, the other helpful category for me was a phrase that comes from Paul Ricoeur, uh, the new naivete. Uh, Often what will happen in a conversation where I'm not trying to get people to agree with me is that I have to nuance or change my view. And that can feel like a loss. It can feel like I I had uh, 100% knowledge and now I have 90% knowledge. It feels like I'm going down. When When I agree that I was wrong or that my worldview needs to be modified in some way, it can feel like a loss. But Rakur reminds us that, you know, even though you're reaching this new naivete, it feels like ignorance. Actually, you've gained something. You you are, you've learned something. And because you've learned something substantive and substantial, everything else in your view needs to shift a bit. And that's unsettling. It's disconcerting, but it's a way of theological and mental maturity. And, And that's how we actually, grow and learn new things, is our our world feels disrupted for a while, but because we are created in the image of God and we can think God's thoughts after them, we're able to rebuild from that place of seeming ignorance something that's bigger and better and broader. You can only do that if you're listening to the other person, even when they're critical of your view. Great. Thank you, Tommy. That's fantastic. I think, you know, there's, there's
2: so many misconceptions of the worldview tradition People say, oftentimes, you know, if you adopt worldview thinking, you're going to become more and more sectarian. You're going to exalt Christian truth over unbelievers in a condescending way, or something like that. But I think what we forget is that the best of the worldview tradition um, actually communicates the Christian worldview as indicating reality. That the Christian truth, the Christian faith, in other words, is simply a declaration of what is true that everybody lives as image bearers of God and everybody are living in God's world. And hence, inevitably, no matter who you are, whatever you profess to believe, whatever your presuppositions are, you will express something true, something about God's image in you that you, you won't, you can't possibly deny, right? So that when we're conversing with other people, because we know that, because that this is the reality that they are denying and this is the reality that we are believing and we are perceiving, they will have something to teach us. They will communicate something that is true. They will express something of the good and true and the beautiful, right? So that the best of the worldview tradition, I think, as as Tommy, you were saying, isn't going to actually inculcate this sectarian mentality where we cannot learn from the unbelievers, but precisely the opposite, that there'll be something beautiful in the unbelieving worldview by borrowed capital, right? And that, that reality, the perception when that is unveiled, can actually also, like you said, shock us to realizing something that we haven't learned before, right
0: yeah, I think about this you know, often stated ethic that before you engage with the person you disagree with, you need to be able to articulate their position in a way that they will be happy that they'll be satisfied with your articulation of their view and I think that's incredibly important. That is basically an application of this love your neighbor ethic that we find in scripture. You're, you're, you're having empathy. This has broad, you know, broad ranging application. This has to do with social disagreements, political disagreements, um, theological disagreements, where it's very easy to cast somebody as an other, and then you just kind of stick them in the camp of group I disagree with, right? and don't actually have to engage with their ideas and honestly grow and learn from their ideas, you know, and, and recognize this this sort of, I, I like this as a life hack, you know, approaching everyone as someone you can learn something from, right? And every conversation that you go into, I remember hearing about a politician who was particularly well known for being good at, at, at cocktail parties and someone asked him, what's your secret? And he said, it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to them, there is something I can learn from them. And so I treat the conversation as my search to find the thing that I can learn from them, you know, and it's kind of a nice little life hack as well in theological debates, you know, as you're debating, find the thing, try to understand the view and find the thing that you're missing, find your blind spot. And that's not only going to benefit you. That's also you giving expression to the idea of wanting to be treated in a, a particular way and treating others in that way. I mean, we've all been um, misunderstood, right, in, in our personal lives and in our academic lives. And everyone knows what that feels like. And you don't want to inflict that on others, the fact that you don't understand what they're saying. And so trying to rightly and empathically understand and be able to articulate their view, I think, is also, it, you know, does 90% of the labor in terms of how do you disagree agreeably. Yeah, it's something
3: I've tried to, and I think some of you as well, we've tried to build into the classroom experience. So so much of the educational mindset is, okay, you've got the expert at the front and they give you the information and then your job is to take in the information and memorize it. Uh, And yet, uh, a lot of what, you know, applying a lot of these insights to the classroom you can, you can think about how education works as something that we build together, that actually that person in the third row at the back of the class, who's obviously there so, to play World of Warcraft and, and not to listen to uh, the, the lecture, but they have a contribution that can then support the conversation that we're having together and figuring out ways to make, the, the, to have, to make those conversations happen is part of the challenge of, of education Uh, in in particular, but the broader conversation of of how we do life and theology together in general.
4: To Tommy's point, recently in my Greek exegesis class, um, some of the students asked why I recommend um, commentaries that are not from uh, individuals in the Reformed tradition. And uh, I was a little taken aback by the question uh, just because uh, for me, it's become such a given that we can uh, learn so much even from those that differ from us. So, you know, I've been listening to a lot more podcasts ever since we've done our podcast, and I notice everyone gives a plug for everything they're doing. So I'm going to do the same thing <laughs> because I actually think it's helpful. You know, to our listeners, I do want to encourage you. Uh, I do. I hope you get the impression, even as you listen to us as a faculty, that we very much um, are deeply uh, ingrained in the reform tradition. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the key things we talk a lot about at our seminaries that we're winsomely reformed in the sense that we don't adopt a defensive posture, but because we believe that all truth is God's truth, we do have a way of just uh, dialoguing with people. And especially at RTSDC, it's just not possible to become like a kind of monitor or something. We do need to be aware of what's going on in the world and dialogue with different traditions and so just wanted to give you know a plug for our seminary sorry about that but i still think it's worth everyone considering
0: i would even add in that case in the case of the seminary there's a pedagogical value to being able to disagree lovingly as it were and it's not as if we all hold the same views on all of these topics and yet it's it's a benefit for me to be able to point out hey by the way dr jean or dr keen or dr lee disagree with me on this point you know here's where we share you know commitments and here's here's where we differ and it helps them there's a there's a cognitive process i think that happens when you have to do this idea of holding two things in tension right this is kind of adult thinking and i feel like sometimes at seminary that's what we're doing we're just teaching people to think like adults to be able to hold multiple ideas and to interact with them even when they're in intention and to say this this is not what i hold to but i understand how someone could hold to this view you
3: know it's important for me to be able to say something like peter lee is totally wrong about harry potter being an anti-hero i mean that's just a complete misreading of the book but we're still friends peter
0: that was very that was very winsome
1: i that i can sleep comfortably now at night knowing that uh that that my view here of, of Harry Potter. He was the uh, offshoot of the uh, Jack Bauer generation. That 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 actually is as true as that. As as that might be. That I'm still well received and loved. Thank you. I I can sleep now at night. Uh, brothers, thank you. This has been a great conversation for me to uh, to engage in because you know we live in a world where we're not all going to agree on things on the same on on, on key issues. Uh, And I've valued a lot of what you guys have been sharing in terms of Paul's, uh, I mean, our faculty member Paul, not the Apostle Paul, uh, his uh, conversations of uh, encouragement to listen, to ask questions of clarity. That's so important. I think we can so easily kind of build up straw men uh, and, and false argumentations where we're not you know, it, it seems part of the frustration of these conversations at times might be the fact that we're, we're not really hearing each other. You know, how many conversations and dialogues that we had where person A will say, well, this is what you believe. Person B will say, well, no, you totally misrepresented me at all. That's not what I believe at all. And but then person B would say, well, this is what you believe. And person A responds by saying, "No, that that's not my view at all. You totally misrepresented me. There seems to be no conversation. They're not even able to understand one another, much less uh, come to a point of 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 mutual uh, agree to disagree." Uh, I, you know, we mentioned uh, Francis Turretin earlier, and one thing I've always appreciated about Turretin is how he begins with this state of the question dialogue. You know, here is the state of the question. Uh, where basically he clarifies a point and says either uh, on either sides here, we can all agree that this is the point that we don't agree on. And if we can really resolve this point, then we could actually come to some form of unity. But I find that so helpful because we can actually say, you're right, This, this is where we are not on the same page. This is where we're not on the same page. This is where our conversations really need to focus and and i find that a a real helpful starting point a lot of what you guys were sharing earlier you know um i like so many of you like all of you are um am a, a reformed presbyterian minister a real pastor so to speak um but you know our reformed heritage at times uh has made it, uh, you know, this is not necessarily the byproduct of being reformed, but it, it tends to be characterized as being not very passionate about evangelism and missions and things of this nature where our Armenian our, um, our brethren tend to be much more passionate and engaged in that. And, and I can't help but to wonder that in our conversation with uh, the non-reformed community, if there's something that we can benefit uh, from that, uh, by just talking about it openly. We can gain their heart for evangelism. They really can gain perhaps more from us in terms of a solid grounds um, of, uh, of of theology, and there's something that can be really beneficial if we can keep open uh, dialogues of, of conversations like that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, we need to be able to glean, even from those with whom we disagree, Deeply, I mean, you use the phrase, Tommy, mining Egypt, you know, and I thought I think about the benefit throughout the scriptures that the people of God receive from peaceable relationships with countries even outside of the land. Right. And being able to benefit from general revelation from common grace and and the fruit of those. and, and, and we need to do, be able to do the same thing. I mean, I remember one of the most profound books that I read, and I'd recommend it to this group, um, not necessarily because of its theolo- theological acumen, but just because of its tonal uh, qualities, is Yaroslav Pelican's Fools for Christ, this excellent book where he traces truth as it's articulated, people pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful in a variety of different phases of sort of Western history. And included in there is, you know, Luther, who and the Apostle Paul, but also Nietzsche. And I remember as a young seminary student being struck at the idea that Nietzsche has much to offer me, and I know for many people that might sound crazy that someone would not recognize that Nietzsche had something to offer, but I was living in the world of that's them and this is us, and to have someone walk me through this is how Nietzsche can help you be a better Christian, uh, without saying that Nietzsche's, you know, faithful in any orthodox christian kind of way but yet recognizing the truth that he has that was kind of revolutionary for me in terms of thinking about other authors and being able to draw what's good and leave behind what's not beneficial uh, we're gonna have to go ahead and close up it's been great as always seeing you friends uh this this discussion that is uh, is recorded has been excellent and i Uh, also enjoy the conversation beforehand as we're trying to figure out what we're going to talk about. It's great, as always, to see you. Can't wait to see you guys again and, uh, and to be in the same place and to share that kind of fellowship as well. And to everybody else who's listening, we will come back and see you next week. Take care. Yeah. Shoot, sorry, I had a response and then I just blinked.
3: <clears throat> but by the way, while we're kind of
0: yeah, paused, pause, pause um, for while Gray's gone, and <laughs> um,
3: I I think this, I think we have enough stuff here, yeah, for this to be the topic.
0: Yeah, I had I had a closing point that would segue us into the next topic. And any uh and yeah, so that's good. I'll just I'll do, I'll do a harder, a harder one. I, I had a really nice, smooth segue. It would have been great, guys. It would have been great. That's right. But we're not going to get that. <laughs> it just, can still just, be great.
1: <laughs> just don't think about it. It'll come back to you.:
0: don't, Yeah, yeah, just,
1: do not think about it.
0: It was really sweet. It was really powerful. People are going to weep.